Hello, welcome to another Rahalastaba this week with the journalist and poker player Maria Konnikova. We're talking about her book, The Biggest Bluff, where she went from not knowing what poker was to being a world champion poker player in a matter of months. It's very interesting. She's got lots of great stuff to say. Uh, she is charming and very funny. I know you're going to enjoy this. Um, look, we're doing another Kickstarter. It's nearly at its end. If you're listening to this on the week of broadcast, uh, rahalastaba.co.uk slash Kickstarter. It's a snooker one. There's some uh, non-snooker merch there as well. But all the profits are going to live comedy clubs. We need to hit £20,000 by the end of the week. I'm hoping we can do much better than that. So we'll uh, be able to give a really sizable chunk to try and help keep live comedy clubs going through this terrible, terrible time. Um, Rahalaspa.co.uk slash Kickstarter if you would like to donate some money to that. All the profits going to charity. And... Do check out twitch.tv slash rkherring. We're doing all sorts of stuff like Ali and Herring's Twitch of Fun, usually on Thursdays, and Me 1 versus Me 2 Snooker. I think you're going to like it. Now let's sit back, relax, and enjoy Real with Maria Konnikova. <laughs> Hello, I'm here. Welcome. Welcome to another episode. Welcome. We're at the Blankety Blank Studios from the 19... I'm guessing 1980s, actually, uh, to this week. Uh, welcome. It's me, Rich Herring. Welcome to a, another episode of Rich Herring's Lemony Snicket's Truth, a podcast. Um, it's a new direction for the podcast. It's... Uh, it's all of it's it's about the fact that I haven't really watched Lemony Snicket, but it's all about how every event in that my daughter loves it is actually actually true, which I think is sort of the point of the program. But I was uh, hanging around with Lemony Snicket the other day. He's real, and everything he says happened happened, and he calls it Rahalastapa. So I don't know if that's going to catch on. Um, so yeah, look, it's very exciting. We're in back in the studio. Look at that, look at proper stuff like a proper TV show. <laughs> I'm very excited uh, and. Um, uh, yeah, the uh, the big news as we record this uh, is that people are up in arms that Rule Britannia is not going to be sung at the last night of the proms. The government's got involved. It's a very terrible situation. The woke crowd are trying to ban it. That is, they all know that that isn't the sto- what has happened at all. The BBC, because of social distancing, have decided not to have it sung. They're still playing it. It's a complete non-story that's been whipped up by the government in order and people like Nigel Farage to try and create controversy. And nobody really cares, I think, about Rule Britannia. It's a bit pathetic. But I thought if to keep everyone happy, you can sing Rule Britannia if you want. And if you don't like it, you can sing Rue Britann- Britannia. I, that's what I'm going to do. So that should be fun. Uh, and what else have I got for you? That's that's pretty much it for my topical humour. Uh, the uh, Oh, yeah, I was did a, I did a gig with Ali Sloper, my ventriloquist dummy, on Sunday, the first time back on stage uh, since March. And Ali Sloper's first time on stage since 1987 when I did the Oxford View with him. We did a gig at the Clapham Grand. Uh, and I hadn't really anticipated how scary my ventriloquist dummy was. It was going quite well until I got him out and people were then pretty scared. But there he is. Look, uh, he is actually Charlie Chaplin in the background there who played on that stage uh, in, the, I guess, the 1910s. Uh, was born three years before Ali Sloper was created. So I don't think he's... I think Ali Sloper's career has lasted arguably longer. That's an argument we can have later. What else have I got? Uh, oh, yes. the uh, If you're watching this live, uh, the Kickstarter stone for stone clearing is nearing its end. We're nearly there with a big push. We should do it. And tonight, if you're around on Wednesday night at 8 p.m., we'll be doing lots of special stuff on twitch.tv slash Herring. It's worth popping along if it's if it's after that date because we're doing lots of stupid stuff like me being with Adventure Lupus Dummy and stuff. My guest is listening to this and will clearly think I'm insane. I think she knows I'm insane already. It's fine. Um, and, uh, so do pop along for that. I will be reading the uh, first chapter of Everything Happens for No Reason, my alternate universe sitcom. We're trying to use the money to make that, basically. But I'm writing it as a book as well. So if, if as long as we make about another £100, that will be read. And there'll be other surprise guests as well. So do pop along for that. I think that's it. Oh no! Except you know, it's very exciting. Look, I think I think I'm like John Oliver. Look, that's it's, I'm exactly like John Oliver. Look, it's hit this. It's the same setup except I'm in blankety blank. I feel very proud of myself. Anyway, 
My guest this week uh, is probably best known for playing herself in a documentary called Mutant Menu. That's why we're all here. We've all congregated. There's quite a lot of people. It's three, we're recording this at three o'clock in the afternoon UK time. Uh, and somehow magically I've traveled back to 10 a.m. New York time. I can't, I'll tell you, the stuff that happens in the next five hours, she's not going to believe what's coming up in her life. Anyway, it is. It's, it's quite weird being in the afternoon. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome uh, my guest for today, uh, Maria Konnikova, ladies and gentlemen. Here she is. Oh, no, yes, yes, she is. Hooray. It's worked. We had some technical issues, but you, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? You. Oh, it's lovely to see you. Uh, we, we had a slight meltdown of OBS, which is the system we work for Twitch, but uh, everything's fine. Uh, lovely to see you. It's 10 o'clock. Well, it's just after 10 o'clock in the morning. It is. It is. So what's what's in store for me today? Well, all sorts of stuff. There's all sorts of amazing stuff coming up. It's mainly just horrible people being fascists and nice people trying to stop them, oh, as it has been. But there's the coronavirus. Have you got that over there yet? It's, that's that's coming up. No, I've never heard of it. No? Oh, you've got that to look forward wow. to. The next five hours. Sounds exciting. <laughs> well, it's that might be Mutant Menu. Do you remember much about being in the documentary Mutant Menu? No, I think, it might have been, I think it might have been an Australian. <laughs> it's on your IMDb page. It's, it was an Australian thing about selecting DNA. Do you remember being interviewed for it? It's on your IMDb. No. Page. It could have been a, could have been a different Maria over. No, I mean I've been, been I've been I've been in a number of uh, of documentaries and yeah. I don't remember all of them. I'm sorry. Wow, that's I don't. That is- I don't get paid to do it. You know, I just, someone comes, I sit, yeah. I answer questions and one day it airs somewhere and no one ever tells me. So I <laughs> get to watch it. I if did you watch could... the fire festival. Oh yes. The, the fire festival, which you're in as well, but that's too good for me to mention it at that point. <laughs> if you could adapt part of your DNA to make it better or worse, which part of your DNA would you change and what would you have adapted? Um, I would, let's see. Well, if we're if we're talking if we're talking something that's actually doable, yeah, um, I would I would get better vision because I have shit vision. It's really okay. bad, um, and it would be very nice to not have to wear contact lenses. Mm-hmm. And that that seems like something that's totally doable. And if it wasn't doable, what would you do if it wasn't doable? <laughs> <laughs> what would what fancy DNA would you like? I mean. It would be nice to have all sorts of superpowers that I could turn yeah. on and off as I okay. wanted to. You know, yeah. no one wants to be able to tell what other people are thinking all the time. You just go crazy. But sometimes yeah. it would be nice. It would be nice to be able to come visible and invisible. I mean, I want I want to be a proper superhero if I can. Okay, that's fair enough. I mean, it'd be good if you're playing poker to be able to read people's minds. That would make exactly. it a bit easier. X-ray vision. X-ray vision. See the that would, be, <laughs> that would be good as well. Uh, there's a Roald Dahl short story about a man who can start. He starts to be able to see through cats, uh, cards, which yes. again would be a useful skill to have. Uh, that's my poker that. tactic. Yes, is to keep is to keep trying that. It hasn't worked so far, uh, though. Cheating is probably the best way to guarantee winning at poker. Uh, so really, we're here. I'm very excited. I've actually to, to prove to you that. Uh, Doing PR is worthwhile. I read about your book in the Observer newspaper in the UK. There was an extract from it in the UK. I was at my parents-in-law. They got the Observer, and I was just reading it in their little conservatory when I was one. And I then fell asleep, not because of the article, <laughs> but because whenever I go yeah, around to their house, I appreciate that. Whenever I get to go around their house, I don't have to look after the kids for for an hour, and I, that's my sleep time. Uh, and so just as I was drifting off to sleep, I read this and I thought, this is very a very interesting book. It's called The Biggest Bluff. And uh, I mean, I'm sure you'll tell us about it. But uh, as my listeners will know, I'm very interested in poker. And I almost was asked to do a book, not exactly the same as this, but to start as a novice poker player and try and see if I could work my way up to becoming a professional poker player, which is sort of what you are. I mean, it's ostensibly what your book is about, though. Your book is really about more than poker it's about life and it's about luck versus skill and the way we fool ourselves i mean a little bit into believing we're in control of our situation um do you want to tell us how this came about doing this because obviously this you'd you'd literally never played card games even before you started that is correct that is correct i don't think we had a card deck in my house when i was growing up we were definitely not a games playing household um i still i still remember my mom's 
look of dread when someone suggested we play Monopoly. She, she, just, <laughs> she just froze up. And I think I actually got some of those uh, talking about DNA. I think I got some of that DNA from her because these days <laughs> when my nieces and nephews, they bring out Travelers of Catan. And when I see that, I freeze up. In, in the exact same way, I'd say, oh no, are we going to have to play that again? <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had to play that game. I, I haven't played that one yet. I'm a, see, I'm a big fan of of board games. I love Scrabble. I love uh, Scrabble I'll, too. Scrabble yeah. is a word game. It is. Well, we see, but Scrabble is has a similar thing to poker. And, and weirdly, I, I, in when you play Scrabble against people and you know what you're doing, you learn all the two letter words. And if you play someone who doesn't know all the two letter words, they consider that you're cheating. To, to know that when you play XI or Q, QAT or whatever you play, yep. uh, they think that's or czar, which is short for pizza, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you I, can't I mean, define, New knows. there's you would know, yeah. Uh, but they, but in poker, I sort of there's a part of me that feels it's sort of cheating to work out all the maths and everything in advance <laughs> and not just play by the instinct of knowing I know this is a pretty good hand. But uh, yes. that's why that's why I'm not a professional poker player because <laughs> I can't be asked to quite I can instinctively do the maths. I'm quite good at maths, but I I I'm not I'm not doing the pot odds in the way that I know you are. Um but uh, yeah so it's it's what what prompted you was it just the um that it was more the interest in in looking at, at game theory yeah. and and luck and chance that, really that got you. That's into exactly it. right. That's exactly right. Um, I basically had a year of my life where nothing went right. It was a lot of bad luck and sure. a lot of things that were totally outside of my control. I mean, it's funny. The first thing I thought of when uh, you asked the DNA question is I, I wanted to change my immune system because I got some really weird autoimmune disease. Um, right. And um, no one could diagnose it. And I, I was very sick for a long time and allergic to everything. I was basically allergic to life. Right. <laughs> and, and that was not very pleasant. And my grandmother died in a really strange, just freaky accident. She wasn't sick at all. You know, people losing their jobs, just all of these things that make you realize that there are really limits to what skill can accomplish. You can work really hard. You can be a good boy or be a good girl and, <laughs> and do everything right. Um, and it doesn't matter when it comes to things like that. You know, I eat well, I exercise, you know, I do what I'm supposed to do in terms of taking care of my health and my body I can still get sick. Um, and yeah. luck just it, luck exists no matter what we think. And I think that we really, wake up to it when things don't go our way. It's so easy to just take things for granted when everything's going well and to just say, oh, you know, I'm good. You know, I've worked really hard for this. This is great. You know, life is good. Um, Life is as it should be. And then when it's taken away, when something goes wrong, that's when you say, oh, wait, Know what's going yeah, on? Yeah, well, here. we sort of all all experienced that. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> you, you had that year a few years before us, but then we've all caught up with you and had it this year. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And so, um, as you mentioned, game theory. I actually started. I did a lot of reading. I mean, I couldn't really leave the house, so I had plenty of time to read. And I started reading about game theory. Someone suggested that if I'm interested in chance, it's a really nice framework for looking at it. And I read this very weighty volume, um, which is the foundational text of game theory. It's called The Theory of Games and Economic Behavior. I don't recommend it. It's really, really tough going. (laughs) Um, I could not finish it. I didn't understand most of it. But John von Neumann, who is one of its authors, the father of game theory, one of most brilliant minds of the 20th century. It's the guy who's the father of the computer. So you and I wouldn't be talking right now without him. One of the fathers of the hydrogen bomb. You know, someone who really uh, did a lot of stuff. <laughs> true, true polymath. Um, and he was a huge poker player. And I learned that poker was actually the basis of game theory. And the way that von Neumann wrote about poker really spoke to me. He has this wonderful quote in the book that is one of the few things that I completely understood and said, yes, this is right. Um, And what he wrote was, real life consists of bluffing, of little tactics of deception, of trying to figure out what does this man think I mean to do? And that's what games are about in my theory. I read that and I said, yeah, that's, that is life. And that's so interesting because von Neumann was a mathematician, but he understood that math was not enough, that real life, real decisions were about people, were about the human element, were about unknowns. And poker, as I found out, was a game of incomplete information where there are things you know, things you don't know. You have to make the best decision you can 
in an uncertain environment, knowing that you don't know everything. And that's life. I mean, that's how you make decisions in life. Life is not chess. I wish life was chess, where every you could see the board and you could see all the pieces and you could figure it out, but it's not. And so I decided to learn more about this poker thing um, and just started reading a little bit about poker. And you know, those moments where something clicks, this was one of those moments where I said, wait, you know, why don't I learn how to play? Why don't I get someone really, really good to teach me? At this point, I had no idea who that someone was going to be and take a year and actually immerse myself in this world and use that journey as a way of exploring these questions of skill versus chance and the limits of the things that we can control. Why don't I use poker as basically this big metaphor, this big lab for life? Sure. And I think people have thought of doing that before. And certainly, you know, I think when I think when I, I was sort of involved in poker in, in the 2000s, when it was really sort of taking off and you felt there was lots of people sort of, going, oh, I'll just give it a go for a year. But sort of what's extraordinary, you know, because it, it, it's the same thing when I as I'm a stand up comedian, a journalist every now and again, going, I'll have a go at being a stand up comedian. And I'll do a gig and see how it goes. And very occasionally those, those <laughs> there's one occasion where a journalist has gone on to become a professional comedian. But mostly as a comedian, you go, oh, yeah, here's another one. Uh but the fact that you, I mean, you know, without ruining the book, <laughs> the fact that you did it and have got to professional level of poker within that time frame, really, within the year or so you, you, you set yourself, I know, and then have, have carried on, is sort of extraordinary, I think, isn't it? I mean, is it, I mean, you talk, and I know in the book you talk about whether it's luck or skill, as obviously that's part of what the book's about, but you, you even question when you've done well in an event. Yeah how much it was luck and how much it was skill, but you're consistently doing well. So there's obviously skill to it. But I think for someone to go, it, it seems, you know, I, as a poker player myself, it seems like incredible that someone can go from not knowing how many cards there are in a deck of cards to winning $200,000 in, a, in uh, a tournament within within a year or so. Is it, do you think, but you did have something that that uh, is a was a help, which was a, a, a very, very good poker player and other poker players helping yeah. you. I had a superpower. I had yeah. Eric Seidel, one of the best players in the world, agreeing to serve as my mentor. And I say mentor as opposed to coach, because it's not like he ever sat down and gave me charts and said, okay, these are the hands you play here. And sure. this is how you do it. In fact, whenever I asked him for anything like that, he would say no. He would just dismiss it out of hand. And I would get very upset and say, well, I want to know how to play this. And he'd say, no, well, let's figure it out. He's he's very much Socratic method. I'd sure. say, how do I play this? Well, how do you think you should play it? <laughs> um, but he taught me how to think. And sure. he taught me how to actually appreciate the game for the things that it could give me, which is better decision-making skills, better abilities to actually work through all of these puzzles for myself as opposed to being given uh, a key a game key and saying you sure. know these are these are the things you should do and yes he also gave me his arsenal which is you know Eric Seidel for people who don't play poker is one of the greatest players in the world and has been around since the 80s and has been winning consistently since the 80s that's unprecedented i mean no one has done what he's done for as long as he's done it hmm. and the people and everyone loves him he's such a good person and such a nice guy and so basically if eric introduces you to someone they will listen to you and they will help you and so he gave me just this magic arsenal of all of the best poker minds in the world and whenever i had a question he'd say oh you know what this is a little too mathematical for me. Someone who's very good at this is Jason Kuhn. And Jason Kuhn is one of the other, one of the best players in the world right now who's kind of younger, more mathematical. I'd go to Jason. He said, you know, for this, you should go to Phil Galfond. And mm -hmm. just all of these people helped me. They came together um, and they were able to just give me the the best of everything. And so in that sense, um, I definitely did not accomplish this by myself. I did. I did work very, very hard. But yeah, well, I think you know that's the the, the the fact is you're not the only person who's come to the poker award and thought, how can I do well at this? There's a lot of people trying to do it. So for you to do it that quickly, even with you know some coaching, is still incredible. There's plenty of people who have that. So there's something within you. So I think that luck and skill thing. You know, there's something within your. I mean, you, you know, you 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 studied psychology, and you, and you've come at it from quite a psychological level. And 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 the book, I think, is it transcends poker because it's about how important in poker and in life. I'm more interested in doing well at poker than I am in doing well at life. I have to say, so I enjoyed the <laughs> poker element. But it's it's about understanding yourself as well as the opponent. So it's it's much more the maths is fine, and 
you know, if you don't, it's all the percentage, the percentages in poker are quite, you know, often even a good hand, it's only going to win two out of three times. Yeah. So you're still losing one out of three times. Sometimes it's eight out of 10, you know, but it's that you're still going to lose <laughs> quite yeah. a lot. So understanding the maths can help you a bit, but I think it's what I found interesting. And I think I found it interesting in the article I read in the Observer was about, um, which was the thing I'd sort of come to myself. I'm very impetuous and I take bad beats very badly and <laughs> and I'm a bad loser and I'm getting better at not doing that. But with bad beats, which is where you've got the best hand going in and then someone hits a couple of fluky cards and beats you, which happens to all poker players. It's if As long as you've played the hand correctly up to the point where you put your money in, then you don't have to feel bad. I think that's that's where a, that's where the, a professional poker player comes in. Because you'll see, if you go to any poker site, people are bitching about, I got, you know, you hit runner, runner, and it's unbelievable, and I've done it myself. And you go, well, that's fine. You want, you know, this, you wanted that guy to call you at that point, and eight, nine times out of ten, you would have won that pot. This is the one time you wouldn't have won, you've done nothing wrong. So, but it's it's about understanding yourself and controlling yourself, isn't it, as much as the, the other players around you, or... E- you know, equally those things. Oh, absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's, that's exactly right. Um, and one of the things you have to realize is that you basically, if you're thinking about skill versus chance, right, the, the skill part of it is the decision-making process. You want bad beats to happen to you because that means you're getting your money in as a favorite. If you never experience a bad beat, I'm, I'm not sure how you're playing. <laughs> you're, 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 never ta- you're never actually getting the money in. You're never yeah. actually taking those risks. And you need to or take- you can see through the cards. Or no, even if you can or- see, well, I suppose if you, if you can see what's coming next, I suppose right. you can, you you can also, pull out. <laughs> yes, you need to have x-ray vision down, down the deck. And actually yeah. the um, but one of the things that Eric taught me very early on, I mean, I still remember this. I wanted to bitch about a bad beat. Because it was going to be my first tournament cash ever. And I could already taste it. Like I was, it was the bubble. And for people who don't play poker, the bubble is the moment where the next person out, um, which in this case was going to be me, gets zero dollars. And then the person after that gets paid. So it's a very pivotal moment where you really don't want to bust out of the tournament. And I flopped a set and it was wonderful. So I had one of the strongest hands you could possibly have, got all our money in and I lost. And I was already counting those chips. I was so excited that I was going to, you know, (laughs) I was going to have my first tournament cash. And I was so upset. And I went to Eric right away. He was playing in another tournament. I waited for a break and I started telling him the story and he told me to shut up. And he never tells me to shut up. He's a really nice guy and he's a really, really good listener. He said, do you have a question about how you played the hand? And I kind of, that made me stop. And I said, well, I guess not. I mean, I had a set. He said, that's it. That's that's all you, you need to know. Um, I don't care if you won or lost. I don't care about the outcome because the outcome has nothing to do with the decision process. It has nothing to do with how you're thinking about it. And he made me promise at that moment that I was actually never going to tell him a bad beat story and that I would never tell him how a hand ends. He didn't care if I won or lost hands. He wanted to know where I had questions, where I wasn't quite sure if my decision process was solid. And he he said this in a, in a very nice way. He said, telling bad beat stories is like dumping your trash on somebody else's lawn. And that was, that was a very lovely <laughs> way of, of visualizing. And he said, you know, there's always that guy who's like, oh, this is the time my aces got cracked. Do not be that person. <laughs> yeah, but it's true in life. As, you know, in life, if you're the kind of person who complains about something that was, you know, unlikely to happen, but is going to, even something that's a million to one, it's going to happen every day to millions of people or several hundred people. So, you know, you, you if you have that attitude, because the problem is if you get upset by, you know, it is the psychology and you talk about the book about, uh, I'm sure we'll get onto this more, a bit more, but men patronizing you and calling you little girl <laughs> and get that getting to you. And that's what exactly what they want. Well, they want to get to you. They want you to start not thinking straight they want to and so if you allow if you're if you're stewing over a decision in poker or in life and uh, then it affects all your subsequent decisions you're still thinking back to that awful mistake or that awful bit of luck not even mistake that awful bit of luck and absolutely. then you're going to screw up everything else. Absolutely. So that's why I actually think the trash metaphor was so apt because it's toxic mm. and it's toxic to you. If you're actually 
focusing on the bad beats, you're focusing on the wrong thing. You're putting your emotional resources, your cognitive resources, and you don't have an infinite amount of that. You're putting that on the wrong thing. You're, all of your energy is devoted to something that already happened and that you can't change. And it's not going to help you get better. It's not going to help you figuring out how that bad beat possibly happened is going to do nothing for you. Sure. Rather, focusing on the process and figuring out, you know what, I made the right decision. If I keep making this decision over and over and over, I'm going to be rich. I'm going to make money. I want those idiots doing this all the time. And it's, as you say, it's so true in life as well. Um, they're the people who just kind of dwell on the outcomes and ruminate and say, oh man, I'm so unlucky. Those are not very fun people to be around. And it's, it's <laughs> Good. Well, and also they don't. You, you don't ever see anyone going. Oh my goodness! I did a. You know, I I was so you hardly ever see. Anyone, I was so lucky that I, I feel so bad. I beat that. People feel when they get the that, that bit of luck. Yeah, I knew that was going to happen. You know, that was sort of my plan. <laughs> but I'd hit the one ace that I needed to get uh, forty that's cards. Exactly right. uh, but but uh, but that but that attitude in life is not. You know, that's also going to steer you badly. If you people do believe they're sort of the the star of a film and and everything sort of revolving around them and they're unable to sort of see outside of that. So the inability to understand when, when you have been lucky yeah, uh, and just assume that that is, well, as you say, lot people assume their privilege and their, their luck is down to their own skill often. And often there will, there'll be skill if you succeed to some extent, but the privilege that you start with and the luck that you have along the way. And if you can't, and, and the other people who helped you along the way, if you can't see those things, then you sort of start to get this elevated, weird idea of yourself. And then you become president of the United States. And Exactly. <laughs> <That's> exactly <laughs> and, right. the world, and the world is destroyed. That's um, exactly right. And, and you have access to the big red button that's going to destroy yeah. the rest of us. But yeah, no, it, it does lead to this really weird hubris and overconfidence if you're not if you're not actually able to go back through the process and figure out, did I actually make the right decision? Did I actually do well? Or did I just get really, really lucky? We have to get into the habit of asking those questions and we never do. I mean, mm. if, if everything's working out well, why, why question it? You know, you just kind of move on and say, yeah, you know, life is good. This is great. Um, and we do that for other people too. We judge people based on outcomes all the time. When something bad happens to someone like, oh, you know, they lost their job or some, some bad business decision happens. They're like, oh, you know, yeah, this guy was stupid. So bad. Like, of course, of course he would have lost all this money. Well, how do you, know? I mean, let's, let's go back. You know, maybe the decision was actually sound and you're blaming someone based on the outcome. And then when we're looking at people who are like, oh my God, this person's brilliant brilliant investor, like made so much money, maybe their reasoning was completely off and you never want to give them your money to invest for you, but they actually just got insanely lucky. You have yeah. to ask that about other people as well. And with and in life and in poker, you know, it's possible, it's unlikely, but it's possible that an absolute, I mean, often when you play against new, new people at poker, they'll end up winning the game because they don't know because they don't know what they're doing and they don't know the risk they're taking and they'll get a bit lucky it's absolutely you know it's it's possible that a complete newbie could go to the world series of poker and through a series of incredible luck win the whole thing i mean it's yes. unlikely with the number of people in it but it's it could still happen so i mean i can completely understand i mean i think that's interesting the way you are still questioning you know late on after you've been a successful player is this luck is this skill but i think I don't know. It's in, the way you approach it is very interesting. I think it's to see someone come in so quickly and get it and understand. And, and I think that psychological element, element and uh, the thing about the, the chapter about um, tells and, and looking at people's hands rather than people's faces. Yeah. So obviously people generally look at people's faces for tells. But in, in your book, you argue that actually statistically that they get it wrong more than they should do by sheer chance by looking at the face. Whereas the ha if you look at the hands, yeah, you have a better a better shot. Can you explain how that yeah. works? So when, when uh, first of all, people are much better at controlling their faces. You, every single person has to control their face all the time. Can you imagine a world where everyone actually just expressed every emotion they were <laughs> feeling at every single moment? Like the people who actually really don't like you when they see you, their face would be like, oh, can't play it's that person again and that would hurt that, that would not be a very that wouldn't be very pleasant um all of the so nice to see you's would would no longer look so nice to see you um and so we we're actually pretty good because we're always looking at people's faces and people just on a normal day are pretty good at controlling their emotional expressions 
put them in a situation where they know people are looking at their faces, where they know that they're kind of that they are bluffing, they're going to be even better because that's what they're thinking about consciously. But other parts of your body are not something that you've paid attention to, not something that you've learned over the years to control. I mean, my hands, I, I, you can see my hands now, I talk with my hands all the time. And our hands are something that we don't pay nearly as much attention to. And our hands give off physical cues. I mean, we have the pulse right here that obviously you can look at the pulse. We have skin conductance, so our hands sweat um, and our hands shake. Lots of things are going on on a physical level. And then just on a psychological level, you might not realize that you move differently um, when you're confident versus when you're a little bit less confident, um, that you actually have different ways of doing the exact same thing. You might be more smooth in one situation, less smooth in another. And mm -hmm. people have found that if you look at people's hands, you can actually predict at higher than chance levels, whether or not they're strong or they're bluffing in poker. And it translates outside of poker and rugby. For instance, if you actually look at a player's hands as an outsider who knows nothing about rugby, like me, I know nothing about rugby, um, mm -hmm. then you can predict the direction that the player is going to go oftentimes. Right. And it's, it's very, very interesting um, that our bodies are actually tell boxes in a way that our face often is not. And the face is giving off the wrong cues because through evolution, we've also developed kind of shortcuts for what means aggression, what signifies trust, you know, what kind of which features correlate with what. And so it turns out that when we look at faces, people who have trustworthy faces, so with the with the characteristics that we normally associate with trust, we might actually be worse at figuring out when they're bluffing because we start second guessing ourselves because would someone with this face really lie to you? <laughs> and, and I found myself doing that. You know, I had to get over that myself. And I actually did the opposite as well with aggression. There was this guy with like huge biceps and tattoos and all this stuff, like bulging everything. I was like, oh my God, you're such a bully. You're gonna, gonna be bullying me. And I made a horrible mistake because it, it ends up that he was actually a very conservative and tight player and I had nice. no idea. So um, beware of, of judging based on things like that. And do you think that knowledge of the hands thing, did that, is that contributed? Were you constantly looking at that when you were playing? Because do you manage to concentrate? Because obviously it's with poker and, and life, it's about uh, observation and it's about noticing, you know, yeah. you're picking up little cues because you're, you're literally just giving yourself the tiniest of edges in every situation, I guess, you know, 1%, 2% here and there can mm -hmm. make the difference for it all. Were you able to use that? And do you think that is part of the reason that you have done so well? I was able to use that. And I think that it actually also um, goes alongside one of the first things that Eric taught me, which is pay attention and mm -hmm. actually pay attention, actively pay attention put away your phone, put away everything. And when you're not in a hand, be looking at all of the players, because oftentimes I'd pick up on how people were betting and what their gestures were signifying when I wasn't playing, when I actually yeah. didn't have cards in front of me and I had folded because then I can devote all of my energy to watching how people play. When, when you're in a hand yourself, there's a lot of other things going on and a lot of other things in your mind and you can't focus as completely on picking up these nuances of gesture. But if you've done the work beforehand, you know, if you've spent multiple hours observing all of the players, then you already have that information going in and you can pay attention to it. You can notice it. Um, I remember one big tournament where there was a player who loved to three bet. So someone raises and he loves to re-raise um, before there are any other cards. And he would do it differently with when he had an actually strong hand versus when he was just three betting light as it's called or, or bluffing with cards that yeah. aren't, aren't actually that good. And it was really interesting. And I thought I'd picked up on it. And so then I tried to uh, actually test my theory. And so when I thought that he was light, um, I decided to four bet him also very, very light just because it was a good spot and he folded. And I was like, oh, okay. And I, kept, and I, and I tested that multiple times. And once I could reliably figure out that that was, that was a thing, then I could exploit it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting in poker. I don't know if this is true in life, but I think that when I've become a better poker player, it's, it's changing your own pace, isn't it? It's sort of, so it's, I, I often quite like, like to play early on, 
quite loose and and let them see you know if you can go in cheaply and look like you've gone on badly then people will make that judgment about you early on and then you either become tight or loose later on you change it and you change it up and then suddenly you can reap in quite a lot and I think that's do you have a was there one piece of advice or one thing within just poker itself that you thought oh that's kind of the game changer that's going to make me a, a great <laughs> great player because because you do keep learning right with poker you, yeah. you're always learning with you're always going oh I think I hadn't within the book. I hadn't really thought about it consciously. I probably had noticed it, but mentioning, you know, if you've got your own hand, often you've got a blocker card in your own hand that means someone else can't have something. I'm sure I've thought of that, but I'd never consciously thought. Of course, if I've got an ace of hearts, that means you can't get a, a, a heart straight, you know, royal flush or whatever. But is there is there one thing in just in poker terms that you think sort of is a game changer for you? No, I mean I I wish there were. I think it was everything <laughs> everything together cumulatively. Yeah. Um, and I think it was just this increasing awareness of of thinking not just about myself and the and the people I'm playing against, but of how they see me, how they think I see them, of just the dynamics and the various back and forth. Um, and that doesn't come all at once. I think you have to become really comfortable um, yeah. in order to be able to pick up on some of those nuances. And for me, the game changers were more psychological. Um, however, what you what you mentioned, blocker effects, I mean, learning strategy like that was really, really important. It was really, really important to figure out, oh, wow, blockers exist. They now teach me how to bluff well, how to bluff with the right cards in my hand and not just bluff because I feel like I should be bluffing more. So they help you actually have a more cohesive and coherent um, strategy. That said, you can't ever forget the psychology because if you hold a blocker, that doesn't mean that they can't hold a strong hand. Sometimes people get too married to the math and to, to things like blockers and they say, oh, well, you know, I... I had the ace of hearts. That means that the chance of them having aces is much lower. Well, yes, but they're still allowed to have aces or yeah. they're still allowed to have a flush. It might be a king high flush, but they're still allowed to have it. You yeah. know, they're still allowed to, ha to have hands that you think that you're mostly blocking. And that's very important. So you have to kind of, you have to marry the two together. You can't yeah. get too wed to the mathematics and you can't get too wed to just I play the man and I don't care <laughs> about the cards um, because that'll get you into a lot of trouble too. But it is about spotting. You know, I think it's interesting. It's spotting about what people think about you. So, and spotting what kind of player they are. I mean, as a, I think as a Victoria Corrin, who I've had on the show before, and I'm a friend, a friend of has been through this as well. Obviously, there are very few, and certainly there used to be very, very few female poker players. And it's a very male environment and a very old, it used to be at least a very old fashioned environment. I don't know if that's still the case. I'm sure it is. Uh, and so you obviously get quite a lot of judgment from some men not thinking you should be there because you're a woman and some men thinking you're going to be a pushover because you're a woman, which presumably you've, uh, the, your success is partly down to using that to your Absolutely. advantage. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it was, that was actually, that was a major turning point for me. So if I if I could pick one turning point, it was probably this. Um, when I realized how much I'd been letting kind of those gender dynamics get me down, because I would let people bully me around. I would, mm. you know, I'd want to seem nice. <laughs> I wouldn't want to upset people. I didn't want them to think of me as, you know, that horrible bitch who always <laughs> raises me. So I would, I wouldn't make a lot of money. And oftentimes I knew what the right decision was, but I wouldn't make it because um, I felt uncomfortable and I didn't want to ruin the dynamic of the table. Um, that's bad. I mean, you can't think that way. But no. once I once I realized that, and once I realized that people underestimated me, that they saw me first of all as a female and only secondarily as a poker player, um, especially early on when no one knew who in the world I was and I was just some random girl. And it is, I mean, it's 97% male the poker world. That's huge. So oftentimes, you know, I'll be the first female that they've seen all day and probably the last. Um, and so once I realized that, and once I started trying to figure out, okay, fine, if you see me as a woman and there aren't many female poker players, how do you think women play poker? Normally it comes down to, oh, my girlfriend never bluffs. Ergo, women never bluff, you know, or um, I won't be caught dead folding to a bluff from a woman. So I'm going to call you no matter what, you know, there's so many different dynamics. If you can figure out which one 
you're facing. And it's usually pretty easy to figure it out because um, players will, will telegraph it um, at some point or other. Then you can really exploit it. If you think I never bluff, I'll, you know, all of a sudden I can be much more aggressive. And I've actually had this happen where some guy, rather than say, wait, maybe she's bluffing more. is like, wow, how do you always have it? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm just running really well today. Just, just keep getting good cards. But in his mind, it was just simpler to think that I was getting hit in the face with, uh, with the deck, that I was just getting yeah. good cards all the time, than acknowledge that he might be wrong. And then the yeah. people who would never fold to me, I'm not going to bluff them at all, but I can actually value bet much more thinly. So now I can bet my bottom pair because I know that they're going to call me with ace high. I know that they're going to call me with almost nothing because they think that there's a slight chance that I might be bluffing. And so I can get a lot more money from hands that I wouldn't ever bet against a good player who actually realizes what I might be doing. And I actually experienced that changing dynamic too. Once I started getting better, once I started playing in bigger events, um, I found myself at my first ever televised table. Um, and I hate televised tables because people can then rewatch the footage and good players do that and good players understand what you do. And I remember sitting at a tournament with a player who's a very, very good tournament player um, who I'd become friendly with. And he just owned my soul <laughs> because this tournament footage had just come out and he'd watched it. And he realized that, you know, I would call down very light because people would bluff me all the time. He realized what I did and he just threw it back at me and completely sure. exploited it. And that was also an aha moment where I said, ah, okay, <laughs> got to be careful because when someone's actually good um, and sees what you're doing, then they're going to flip what they're doing and you have to be willing to, uh, to change yet again. You have yeah. to constantly be thinking about adjusting as opposed to this is the way I play. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, it's slightly. I know I was talking about my book too before the, before we started, but it's slightly. There's a slight crossover with men in that you get the the overconfidence that that men can sometimes have uh, can can be a very good thing to to be. I mean, I, there are those very. It's often difficult to play a very aggressive player because you, you know you're thinking which if they're playing every hand aggressively, you don't know when they've actually got it. And the, my least favorite thing in poker is somebody's going all in straight away and they can get do it two or three times and then you've sort of got to start calling them and then they you know they often just have the good hand on, on the fourth hand when you start calling them but it's sort of a, it's a it's a weird it can't work in the long term that aggressiveness because if you if you're just going all in on the first hand which often happens on like online i think um you know you're gonna you're gonna get if, if you've got a good hand you're not gonna get called and if you've got a bad hand you are you might get called by a good hand so you're going to lose pretty quickly in playing yeah. that way is there any uh, psychological uh, <laughs> evidence about whether whether it's i mean obviously it's better to be somewhere in between but it did do, do tight players or aggressive players do better in the long run in tournaments so do we, i mean do we know? i think in tournament poker um aggression is better however yeah. it can't be thoughtless aggression you know nice. this is this isn't the 2000s where thoughtless aggression won because no one yet had figured out that you could three bet light and four bet light and so yeah. if you did that people just assumed you had aces and folded especially if you yeah. were a female um you know you have players like vanessa selbs who is now retired but was one of the great female poker players who made her money early on by exploiting that and by realizing mm. that she could just be insane and people would fold and she'd make a lot of money. Um, you can't do that anymore, but you do, if you're just playing, you know, completely tight and straightforward, um, you're also probably not going to win. And tournaments are in tournaments. What I've learned from Eric is that your goal isn't to cash to kind of make the minimum amount of money. Your goal is to make the final table because that's where the money is. You're never going to actually be making a lot of money um, if you just squeak into the money and then don't have yeah. any chips. And to accumulate chips, you do need to be aggressive, but you need to be smart about it. You need to figure out when to not be aggressive. You need to figure out that, yeah, you know, sometimes it's okay to fold for an hour. That's okay too. Um, and so it's that ability to ramp it up and to ramp it up in an intelligent way rather than to be the guy who's always going all in. But you do, you do need, you can't win a tournament without aggression. 
it seems though amongst the, and from my experience as well as your own in the book, I think amongst the the more professional and successful players, there's quite a, a friendly and there's a sort of camaraderie between them, and they were quite welcoming to you, weren't they? I think the the good, but I think you had some bad experiences with regular players. But the actual, it's interesting because I think like as again with comedians, I think comedians have this reputation that they'd be unfriendly and wouldn't welcome you, but actually they, they are. There's this lovely atmosphere. If, if once you're into the circle, then you're welcomed. Uh, but it did seem once they're confident enough to know that they're good and know you're good enough that they're that they're, there was you were partying well dr- going out drinking with the the, the the players and they were helpful right they were they, they were, were they were yeah they were um and I think part of the you know I obviously I fell in love with the game along the way Eric yeah. if Eric gave his love to me <laughs> because he loves the game and he he made sure that I appreciated the beauty of it. But one of the things that I really didn't expect was how amazing the people are. And yeah, I had some really, really nasty experiences um, when I would walk into a random casino and I would get, you know, all sorts of stuff thrown at me um, and uh, all sorts of aggression. I mean, I've been called everything under the table. I've been propositioned and been given a price for the night. I mean, just <laughs> things that you don't think will happen. Uh, yeah. happen. But yeah. then you, you see these amazing players and they are just, they're not only brilliant people, which they are, I mean, they could do anything they wanted to. Um, and they've chosen to play poker because they love the game and they, they think that it will give them something that other things might not give them. But they're also, they're nice, good people. Um, sure. And it's just such a, it's actually, it's a wonderful atmosphere. I've met some of the nicest people I know in the poker world. And that's just, and they're so willing to help, not just help you with poker strategy, but they'll help you if you need, if you actually need help, if you need anything, sure. um, you know, you can rely on them. And that's not something I expected. I expected poker to be, you know, zero sum cutting, you know, everyone, everyone is out for themselves. And yeah, you do have to realize that there are no friends at the poker table. If your yeah. best friend sitting next to you, you have to be willing to bluff them still. Um, but there are uh, away from the poker table, everyone knows that that's a game. And then when you get up from it, you can be best friends um, sure. and, and just open up to each other. And it was, you know, it's one of these things where when you see what's possible, it makes you want to do that. I right away thought, you know what? I don't want to be playing in these little casinos with these people who are mean to me. I want to earn the right to play with these guys who are awesome and fun <laughs> and smart um, and just good to be around. Yeah, I mean, so it's it's. I mean, there's again, there are parallels of being a comedian. I think in yeah. terms of the traveling and staying in hotels and being indoors a lot, <laughs> not doing anything. and it's you know, you talk about the loneliness of of. You're being away from home. Yeah. I mean, it's great in New York. You're not even allowed to gamble online, so you had to go to New Jer- to Jersey to, yep. to, to to gamble online, which is yep. kind of crazy as well. So even that, you weren't, you weren't even able to do it with your, around your husband. But uh, did you have you overcome that the loneliness when you're when you're on the road? Or I mean, you do, you do book tours and stuff as well, so you must be yeah. I mean, aware I- of. I've I've traveled a lot always, but never as much as I did for poker. I mean, right. in 2018, when I really started playing full time, this was after I started doing well, um, had a sponsorship from Poker Stars, and was like was doing just poker, um, yeah. all out. Um, I spent over eight months traveling of the year yeah. in total. After I did the math, that's a lot of time, um, and I was all over the world. You know, I was not just in the US, I was in Macau, I was, you know, in Asia, Europe, just just everywhere. And um, that's, it's much more intense than when you're traveling for a book tour. Um, yeah. And it's never ending. You know, you, yeah. you never, you actually can travel, there are some poker players who don't own an apartment because they just travel the circuit year round. And yeah. it's hard. I mean, I did find ways, I, I did manage to learn to make the most of it and to enjoy it. Um, but you never really are enjoying it in the sense that um, if you do have family, if you are someone who likes where you live, um, then it's nice to be home and it's yeah. nice to reset and it's nice to have those pockets of time to just 
reboot, reboot emotionally, reboot physically. Poker is exhausting, just like stand up. You know, it, yeah. it, it's a physically demanding thing and you have to be on your brain has to be on. You have to be dealing with all of these things. And people are like, oh, my God, wow, like you're in Monte Carlo. I'm like, yeah, I'm in the casino. <laughs> yeah. I'm we not- never say I mean, but that's I mean, I think it's it's much harder than stand, you know, stand up. You might do an hour or two where you've really got to concentrate and you do. You are, it's exhausting mentally. But that's what I even like when I've done tournaments that are three or four hours. I'm not I don't I think that's why I decided I wouldn't. You know, there was a point where I thought I could have a go at trying to go semi-professional at this and try and write my book about it. And I just thought, I don't have the concentration. I just get, I get too bored to, to sit there and, to, and concentrate and do all this and do yeah. all the observation. And it's, it's so tiring. So yeah. it does take a, it takes a very special kind of person to do it. I think, it, you know, it, it, it's still, I, I still find, even with the, knowing the, reading the book and knowing how you did it, it's sort of amazing. It makes poker look easy that you've come in and done it. <laughs> yeah. And I think what will happen is a lot of people will start playing poker. It'll be very good for poker. Yeah. If people read this book, they'll go, I'll, I'll give that. It made me want to go, yeah, I could give that a go. Uh, but I don't think many people will succeed as, you know, I, I, think, I can't think of anyone who's really succeeded as quickly as you have. So, but it's also impossible to think of anyone who would be playing poker <laughs> who, when they started, didn't know what cards were. This is true. I mean, I still, I still think that there should be 54 cards in a deck. It just seems more <laughs> right. I mean, why don't we use the jokers? The jokers we are play with the jokers. <laughs> the jokers are so nice. But no, I wasn't even thinking in my head of the jokers. I just thought 54 for yeah, whatever 54 reason. Sounds that, was, right. that was the number in my head. It just sounded right. I was like 54, you know, but yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people have asked me, they're like, Oh, so how do, how do I get good? And I mean, my answer was there's, it's like with writing, there's no shortcut. You just have to do it a lot. And I, I mean, I was really living and breathing poker seven days a week. I left the New Yorker where I was, where I had been writing. I put, you know, my contract on hold to do this full time. And every day, all day, I would be studying. I'd be playing. I'd be reviewing hands. I'd be talking through it. I was thinking about it. Started having dreams. I was dreaming poker. Um, I My nightmares were bad beats. <laughs> and it was just, it took over my brain. And I think that that's the only way to do it is, yeah. is to really give it your all if if you have this timeline i i think that for most people why would you want to kind of compress it i was doing it for a very specific reason yeah and and i knew what and i knew exactly why i was doing it and it actually helped me emotionally and mentally get through a lot of the hard parts because i always could have two minds like when something terrible was happening at the poker table there was another like little me sitting on my shoulder thing but it's going to be great material for the book (laughs) (laughs) and i could have that sort of remove i was like wow this sucks but it's going to be a great scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean, but the book wouldn't, if you just flopped out and, I mean, I guess the book, but you you knew you were writing the book fairly early on. You just yeah. get, you gave it a go and thought, right, okay, there is a book in it. But if you hadn't had any success or if, you know, or if you just got made the money a couple of times in a couple of tournaments, yeah. that wouldn't, it wouldn't be as impressive a book. I love the fact that the, the there is a big win, yeah. which is fantastic, but it is, that isn't in a lot. I think you even say this in the book, but it, for a lot of people, that will be this is the end of the book, and here I go, ah, I'm out of the <laughs> casino punching it. Yeah. But you know that isn't the end of the book no. for you, and you can, and there's more stuff after it, um, which I think is really great. It's a really great thing. But if you hadn't had that big win, then that would the books would you have still had a book? Do you there think? would have been a book. It would have been a very different book. <laughs> yeah. um, and and you know it's when you talk about skill and chance. To win a tournament, you need to play well, but you need to also get very lucky. And for my big win, there were definitely a few moments where I should have been out, um, statistically speaking, and I wasn't. I actually lucked out and was able to stay in. And I, you know, it's funny. No one cares about second place. Had I even come in second, like, no one cares. (laughs) I remember this quote from when I was little. Someone said it once and it just stayed in my head. They said, well, second place is actually the first loser. And I was like, yeah, that's right. (laughs) And in my mind, I always think second place is the first loser. (laughs) And, you know, I, um, when, when the big win happened, it's not, you know, it's, it's not a spoiler in the sense that there was a ton of media coverage about it and about me because it was so cool. They're like, oh, journalist wins poker tournament. 
journalist comes in second in poker tournament <laughs> doesn't have <laughs> the same ring. So I think there would have been a book because that is outcome, right? Me winning, that's outcome. That's not process. I could I could have played really, really well and not gotten lucky and come in second or not, you know, or made the final table. And that would have been really wonderful. And I think there would have been a book there as well to show, mm -hmm. you know what, you can do really well and yet not have that final bit of luck. But of course, it made a big difference that I won. Mm -hmm. I'm so, I'm very grateful that I got lucky as well um, sure. because it enabled me to, make this journey very different and make the book different um, than it would have been. Yeah, but I think there's something, you know, I think there's something in your personality and the way you are. They're just that saying, you know, that second isn't any good, <laughs> which I agree with. I come second all the time in everything I have to do. Um, but, you know, that desire to win whilst understanding it's a game and it doesn't really matter. I mean, I, I, it's sort of, it is like life and it isn't like life. And I think, I think in the book, you're quite, you're, you're talking about being quite risk averse and, you know, I, I, and in like any, physically threatening situation i'm a massive coward but i'm much more brave in the virtual reality of the yeah. poker arena yeah. because it's not it's not real it's a virtual reality situation so i don't i i feel it's it, there's lots of life lessons in there and back back and forth between the two but you can you know you can be someone slightly different in the in the poker world than you I actually think are. that's exactly right and that's why it's such a good teaching tool because it mm. teaches you how to think about risks and how to take risks um in a way that you can then try to apply to life in in the right setting in but you would never have done it without the poker because as you say you're you're risk averse and in life like the stakes seem too high and it seems too dangerous but if you learn how to think about it if you learn with within this relatively safe environment that's cleaner that doesn't have all the noisy stuff that's going on in life you can actually learn a lot and then take it back to to the real world so i think as a sure. teaching tool um it's incomparable um and it does it does help you also try out different personalities. You know, I can be this person, I can be that person um, and see what fits and see what feels right and discover things about yourself that you don't really like. You know, I didn't like what I found at the poker table a lot of time. I didn't like that I let myself be bullied. I thought, damn, you know, that's, not, I'm a strong person. How, how am I letting this happen? And without poker, I never would have realized it. I never would have started working on it because you never have to realize it in life. In poker, if you don't yeah. realize it, you're just going to lose money. You're going to bleed out. <laughs> and and, yeah. so, and so the stakes are immediate and you're getting feedback and you're able to actually go through that thought process. In life, you never have to ask the tough questions. You can always pawn it off on something else. Oh, I wasn't really letting myself be bullied. I was just considering this and this and this. Yeah. And all of a sudden I have all these excuses and I never actually have to work through what was going on in my head. But there's lots. I mean, I was thinking like things like renting a house or buying a house or getting yeah. a job, you know, th those negotiations. I mean, buying a house is like the biggest game of poker, you know, <laughs> that, that I've ever played because, you know, they know that you're working out how much they want to sell, how desperate yeah. they are to sell. They're working out how desperate you are to buy. They, you, if you're selling, you've sort of got an advantage because you're thinking, well, I know they really want it because they're putting the money in. But if I, you know, if I ask for 10,000 pounds too much, that could ruin the whole thing. So you've got that whole game of poker, which, you know, is going to, there could be a hundred thousand pounds in, in in that decision between you know you could, if you get it right and if you get it wrong. So it is a it's a great skill to to master and to and have that self awareness. And I think that's I think exactly that the things I don't like about myself, um, the but the competitiveness when I get like angry, you know, when I get piss in your pocket, kind of angry about a bad beat, which I think I'm overcoming, and uh, and yeah, and letting things. Because it, it is, it's about that needling. It's about not being needled. It's you know, even it, you not being bullied and allowing yourself to go to the get to the next bit and carry on as if the first thing, you know, even if you made a mistake, even if it's not a mistake, if it's a bad beat, to move on to the next thing. But I do want to talk about. I know we haven't got much time left. Um, you've glossed over the most important thing that happens to you in this whole story, which is you meet the you meet Stephen Hendry, the world snooker champion, and you just like you. Do, you just pass over that as if it's nothing. Really. And I, I had no that. That should have been the book. I once that happened, that should have been the book. My night with Stephen Hendry, and you just—it's a <laughs> sentence, and it's over. Like he's nothing to you. This is true. I didn't know who he was. Yeah. Um, there was just some guy at the poker table, and people were really, really excited about it. And I couldn't figure out why people were so excited about him. So I kind of whispered to someone I knew. I was like, 
what's up? And they're like, oh, he's the snooker champion. And I was like, what snooker? <laughs> and we, you and I were talking a little bit earlier. I, I've been mispronouncing yeah. it the whole time. I, I thought it yeah, was- Yeah, I've ruined it because I love the yeah. way you Americans say snooker. I, I, I thought it's it was- My favorite I, thing. I, I, I always said it's <laughs> So now I'm making, yeah. I'm making a conscious effort to say snooker. Yeah. <laughs> um, snooker. But I had to look up what the game was. And, I was, and then I- I really put my foot in it. I was like, isn't that just pool? And like, there's just this moment of, this moment of, oh, I can't believe she said that. No, it's nothing like and pool. Yes, she's right. She is right. It is. It's just like a rubbish pool on a massive table. And But the funny thing uh. is they're like, oh, it's nothing like pool. I'm like, come on. You can't say it's nothing like pool. Like, look look at this. But he was, he was really nice. And he, uh, after yeah. poker... Um, we all bonded at the table. It was actually one of the most fun tables I've ever played at. Everyone was laughing. <laughs> Everyone was having a great time. It probably helped that this is in Dublin. And Dublin is actually the only place where I've played poker where even the pros drink at the tables. <laughs> Professional <laughs> players don't drink when they're playing poker. That's just not done. In Dublin, it's noon and they're like, uh, where's your Guinness? <laughs> you know, where, Where's your whiskey? What's, what's going on? Um, and so everyone was just having a great time. And then he he actually did a, a little exhibition snooker playing uh, for That's for everyone. He he, uh, he set up the table, um, and he it was just I knew nothing about the game, but I could appreciate the beauty of what I was saying. Yeah. You know, it was like just the way that everything was the way he was coordinating. We talked about hands earlier. If you watch his hands and his concentration as he sets up shots and as he does this, it, it really gave me an appreciation for a game that, you know, a few hours earlier I'd known nothing about. Um, and, he, and he was a great guy. I really enjoyed meeting him. I now know who he is. Um, I would recognize him if I saw him. I know why he's a big deal. And I will one day learn to pronounce snooker the way it's meant to. Well, you've met the word. He's, he's, I think he's the most, He's won the most world championships. Well, I might be wrong about it. He certainly won a lot. And you've now won. I'm the world self-playing snooker champion as well. So you've met two. I don't really appreciate the two-player version because I don't think I think that's not right. But I am the best at playing myself at snooker in that's, the world. That's amazing. Congratulations. So, you know, you can write put that in your next book. I will. Don't just gloss over it and go, oh, I, I met a bloke and he plays himself at snooker. That's I, the book, isn't it? I won't. I'm going to... Because that's... Your, your game's... Games are, you know, and poker, you're playing, you're the main opponent is yourself in life. <laughs> and in poker, that's your main opponent. If you can beat yourself, then you can win. That's you've got to defeat yourself first. That's absolutely and then right. You can beat everyone else. And, and that's see, the lesson of self playing. This is so true. And this is why I actually just put Stephen Hendry in one sentence because I knew I was going to meet you. And I knew that <laughs> yeah, that was okay. the real story. That the real story okay, was. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's look. I won't take too much. I know you're working on a uh, on another project. I don't know. Do, do we allow, do we know what it is, or are we allowed, um, are you allowed to talk about what you're working on now, or is it? Well, I'm working on a, a lot of uh, a lot of different things. I'm working on a TV yeah, show. But I can't that I can't talk about the specifics of that. Um, sure, sure. And I'm working on some screen stuff, and also my next kind of written thing is actually in terms of books isn't going to be on the page, but is going to be for Audible. Um, so I'm going to be doing. Okay. Um, something something more journalistic, but for for audio version. Yeah. Cool, because there's there's a lot of. I mean, you've done a couple of other best selling books as well. One about which uh, I, I will maybe we'll get you back next time. I mean, yeah. next time you on a book tour, I might meet you in person. But uh, the, I'd like, you did the podcast called The Grift, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you did a book about con men, mm-hmm. which is which is very interesting. We haven't got time to talk about it. You got to. But how do I think like Sherlock Holmes? Just tell me what I have to do. Just sum that book up. In, in a sentence. How many steps lead up to 221 B Baker Street? Uh, three. And you fail. You can't be sure. Okay. <laughs> that was your, that was your one sentence test. No, I mean the, the Sherlock the Sherlock Holmes book was really um, about mindfulness and about kind of right. the um, power of presence and of learning mm-hmm. to really be in the moment and um, take in the things that most people miss. Um, it was. A lot of it was based on this dichotomy between Holmes and Watson, Holmes as the mindful one. And Watson as a very smart man, a doctor, uh, very accomplished, but someone who is more mindless, who just goes through life letting things happen um, and not consciously directing his attention. Um, so that's uh, that's the secret to being Sherlock Holmes. 
Okay, good. Well, I don't have to read that one, but I'm going to read the other one. And then... <laughs> I don't want to think like Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and I've, I've managed to get away without you, without asking you to analyse me too much, because I haven't told you about most of the mad stuff I do, but that's good. Uh, look, it's been lovely to meet you. Uh, good luck with the book. It's called uh, The Biggest Bluff, and The Biggest Bluff is... And it's not in snooker, in, in poker even. It's definitely not in snooker. It's, it's about, it's the way we kid ourselves. It's very, it's a, there's loads more stuff to, in the book than we've even talked about here. And we've covered it very well uh, in this conversation. Uh, I hope to see you again. And I hope you're back at the poker tables very soon as well. I, I hope to see you to at the poker tables as well as on, as well as live. Yeah, I'd uh, love to, I'd love to get, I'll, I'll, let's, I'll play you at poker next time I see you. Let, you I'll let you, let you win. Let's do our <laughs> okay. next over cards okay that sounds very good uh ladies and gentlemen thank you very much uh and uh, next week we have um i'm just looking up oh yes it's michael fenton stevens from radioactive and many other things uh, i'm on twitch tonight at eight o'clock if you're watching this live ladies and gentlemen give it up maria conagova thank you very much see you goodbye <laughs>